All right. Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forum's new web Friday webinar and podcast series featuring talks from the Middle East Forum's projects. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be hosting this discussion today. The format will be a 15-minute interview followed by 15 minutes of Q&A from the audience. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I am pleased to turn it over to Winfield Myers, Director of the Middle East Forum's Campus Watch Program to introduce his guest today. Thank you, Stacy, and good afternoon, everyone. Our guest today is Professor Philip Carl Saltzman, who is Professor Emeritus of Cultural Anthropology at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, his books include, among many, uh, groundbreaking work, Culture and Conflict in the Middle East, as well as Postcolonial Theory and the Arab-Israeli Conflict. He's an MEF Writing Fellow, a Campus Watch Fellow, and on six editorial boards. He has a BA from Antioch College in Ohio, and Professor Salzman earned his PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Chicago. Uh, today, we're going to discuss a pernicious and uh, spreading problem throughout academia, and that is the cancel culture, uh, particularly in Middle East studies, but uh, more broadly as it affects academia, uh, because this is a, a problem that not only has affected uh, Middle East studies and other disciplines as well, it has affected Professor Salzman personally. Uh, as he has been uh, the target of those on his own campus who would, if they could, uh, deny him his uh, right to speak as an academic about his own specialties. Um, Professor Salzman, you, you spent many years in the Middle East. Your specialty is, uh, among other things, tribal societies and tribal life in the Middle East. Um, and recently, back in November of 2020, you were the target of a, a petition, a campaign on your home campus at, uh, at uh, McGill to have you censored and to have your emeritus title removed because some students, including the members of two anthropological societies, one undergraduate and one graduate, uh, objected to things that you had written and claimed that they were uh, racist, uh, homophobic, uh, Islamophobic, uh, I don't know what well, you know, the, the entire panoply that, that we hear so often when people try to, to cancel others. Um, could you please uh, tell us a little bit about that and how that plays into Middle East studies and what it, uh, what it tells us about academe as a whole, how it's changed over the years since you began your career? I came to McGill in 1968. And uh, Academia at the time looked very different than it looks today. Uh, there was a uh, there was an openness to the university to different ideas. There were no, there was no official ideology of universities at that time. Uh, rather, uh, individuals would put forth their ideas people who objected to them or had alternative perspectives would engage them in debate. And it was very common that people would publish an article uh, taking a certain point of view, making a particular argument, and other arguments would appear, other articles would appear that would challenge, challenge that, that would present uh, uh, alternative uh, uh, alternative evidence, uh, contrary conclusions, and sometimes, <coughs> excuse me, 
sometimes the debate would go on and other articles would arrive and uh, other academics would read them all. It, these debates became a part of, of teaching what students learned when they came in and people could decide which view they thought was better uh, argued. And that was, that was the basic model of academia at the time. Now, there was no official ideology of universities then, but that's changed. Over the 50 years that I taught, uh, there was a tremendous impact on academia by various social movements. Uh, the feminist movement was very influential and the feminist movement was the first really to, uh, to impact the university in, in a substantial way uh, by advocating a Marxist framework in which society was seen not as a matter of cooperative elements such as you got in Durkheim's division of labor, uh, but instead uh, as a class system in which you had an oppressing class and, and a set of oppressed victims, in this case, the patriarchy versus females. Um, this, this Marxist class conflict model was picked up uh, as time went by, by people with uh, uh, on, on sexuality basis, uh, heterosexuals against uh, homosexuals and others, uh, and then uh, by race activists who argued that uh, there, was, uh, there were white oppressors and people of color uh, victims of that, of that oppression. So it was a creative transformation of the Marxist model of economic class conflict between proletarians and bourgeois capitalists, because that never uh, got any traction in, uh, in North America. And this uh, shift to identity politics became very powerful and it embedded himself in uh, academia in various subunits like women's studies, uh, black studies, queer studies. Uh, and so you got, you had official representation in, um, in universities by this, this approach. Uh, there was a, uh, a correlate um, for international affairs that became that became quite influential. This wasn't so much identity politics as it was the application of Marxist-Leninism to international relations, in particular, the emphasis on imperialism and colonialism. Uh, Edward Said in the 1980s uh, wrote a very influential book that argued basically that um, that Westerners couldn't uh, under, uh, didn't have a realistic view of the Middle East. They were just making excuses in order to intervene, um, conquer and oppress Middle Easterners. Uh, I thought that that 
book would not have a lot of influence, which will tell you how wrong I was, uh, because uh, Edward Said was an expert, not in the Middle East, but in Jane Austen's novels. Uh, he never really wrote about the Middle East. He never really said what Middle Eastern culture was. He said, it's too diverse. You can't really say about anything about Middle Eastern culture. Um, and so I thought anthropologists would know better than to take this uh, argument seriously. But instead, they adopted wholesale what came out of that approach, uh, which is post-colonial theory. And po what post-colonial theory says uh, as, as a Marxist application to international relations is that everything that's wrong in the world is the result of Western imperialism and colonialism. That the world was a lovely place where everyone got along and there were never anybody, never any problems until the West came and oppressed the local, the local people. Uh, and that approach, post-colonial theory, is the dominant theoretical model in, in the social sciences today. So uh, Marxism has been really uh, adopted wholesale, not in its uh, original form, but in, in the uh, uh, in its identity politics form uh, and in the post-colonial uh, theory form. Now, uh, that still might have left room within the university for different views. But uh, governments, agencies, scientific groups, uh, and universities themselves adopted a Marxist model, which they call uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and it is a, uh, a collective view that, uh, that sets aside individuals in favor of their census categories. And it uh, mandates the imposition of equal results of, uh, for, for each category. So it's a, it's a kind of an, an imposed uh, equality based on, uh, uh, based on collective census categories. How did this affect your discipline in Middle East studies and anthropology in particular, all that you've just now discussed, these, the, uh, the hyper, um, the, the need for equity, the, the cultural relativism, the anti-Western beliefs and the, the doctrinaire nature of all of this. Well, and, and uh, then people began to think of themselves not as scholars, but as people uh, people with particular ethnic identities, race identities, gender identities, sexuality identities. And that became much more important to them than being an intellectual person, being a researcher, being an inquirer, being someone who could argue and, and debate. 
that kind of went away. The answers were already given. We already know what is right, what is good, what you should be able to say. That's all given by these ideologies. Uh, and so people stop those kinds of debates. And you see this in the case of the attack on me by eight groups, uh, uh, several of them Middle Eastern groups, uh, Islamic groups, also anthropology groups, and, uh, and the executive of the Student Society. Uh, we don't know exactly how that was mobilized. Uh, it's possible that uh, since the main reference was an article of mine on the Middle East, that it was the middle people of Middle Eastern derivation who were at first found themselves offended because I didn't say the Middle East was a wonderful place. I said, it's a place of a great deal of conflict and violence. And I, I set out in the article in a very scholarly way to explain the nature of uh, conflict in tribal societies and in pre-industrial states. And the, those are the two main forms in, in the Middle East. Uh, One of the striking things about this is that the, uh, those who are attacking you and attack your, your colleagues reject the findings that you have derived through empirical research and even reject the uh, the, the idea that empirical research itself can yield valid results, which makes doing anthropology or any kind of other scholarship for the Middle East or other areas essentially impossible. Well, that's the beauty of ideology. You already know the answers. Empirical research is redundant, except to find, to illustrate the truths that your ideology has already set out. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, having read my articles and uh, my article and having said it, it offended them uh, uh, because after all, I suppose uh, they don't wanna think that there's violence and cruelty in the Middle East, uh, which makes you wonder because we just been, uh, we just viewed the Syrian civil war in which almost a half a million people were killed We've seen ISIS engage in the most brutal and cruel uh, treatment of their alleged enemies uh, and infidels. Uh, uh, and so uh, you would have thought that uh, they would have welcomed my, my article. Instead, they said, among other things, that, that it made them feel they, could, they didn't feel safe. My article made them feel unsafe. I thought that was curious because I suspect that uh, the families of most of them uh, came to North America uh, because they didn't feel safe in the Middle East. Uh, and that had they been in the Middle East, they'd have good reason not to feel safe. The other thing they said was um, the article was uh, racist and Islamophobic. They didn't say homophobic. Okay. They, uh, I didn't reach that far, I guess, but uh, they, uh, I thought that was curious because 
race was not mentioned in the article, mm -hmm. nor was Islam mentioned in the article. So uh, their, their kind of standard accusations that you make against people if you don't like them. They cited a bunch of my other articles that, that they somewhat misrepresented, but they didn't like the general position that I took. But what's most important is that they did not challenge my work intellectually. They did not write a reply. They did not uh, question my data. They did not offer alternative data. They did not make a contrary argument. They did not use any intellectual means to counter the view that they objected to, which of course would have been the traditional academic way of, uh, of challenging a work. Do you Instead, know how your, your colleagues who also do Middle East studies at McGill reacted to this? Did people come to your defense? Particularly those in Middle East studies I'm interested, interested in, although others too. Um, I'm wondering how far this contagion has spread among your, your peers there, your former colleagues with whom you worked for well, years. Well, yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't know. They did not, uh, professors of Middle East studies and, and anthropology did not come out against me. They did not come out in support of the students. Uh, whether, what kind of debate went on among them, I, I don't know, I'm not privy to, I'm, I live far from McGill now. Uh, uh, so I'm not sure about that, but they did not come out in support of me either. Uh, and uh, I, I can't say that surprised me very much. It surprised me more that students who in general, I found were certainly undergraduates were not unreasonable when I was there. I always felt that undergraduates, graduate students tended to be more ideological, uh, but uh, that students who are still beginning and really haven't accomplished anything should feel free to attack someone who uh, has done a lot of work in anthropology and as much published and so on, uh, I think takes, uh, it, it's, it's a little surprising and a little shocking. Let me ask you a few questions from our audience now. Um, one person writes, is there any reason why you or anyone should not be an Islamophobe or do you attribute the violence and cruelty in Middle Eastern society solely to the inheritance of tribal conflicts and traditions? Um, well, Islamophobe means that you're, you're irrationally afraid of Islam. Uh, I wonder if your questioner is asking, are there not reasonable grounds to be concerned uh, about Islam? Mm -hmm. Probably what they mean, yes. Um, well, uh, certainly we have recognized that um, uh, jihadi, Islamism uh, is, is an adversary of, of people in the West, of states in the West. And we have uh, tried to counter it at a level of, of state, uh, state policy. So uh, I think that you don't have to um, 
endorse Islam and all of its political movements uh, in order to uh, not be not be an Islamophobe. Uh, I think, uh, and I think it's important that we deal with, contrary to where we are now in an, in identity politics, I think we need to deal with people as individuals. And, uh, and that goes uh, for individual Muslims as well as, uh, as people of other, other faiths and identities. Uh, so uh, I, think, I think it's important to, uh, to be very judicious in one's judgments and be very specific um, and uh, I think it's it's absurd to condemn Islam as much as to condemn Christianity or Judaism. And the approach you're you're displaying right now, Abadad, is is precisely what a scholar should display: uh, weigh the evidence, do this dispassionately. Uh, and not know the answers to your questions before you ask them. Let me ask you another question from the audience. Um, someone asked, to what extent do you believe fear of being canceled had uh, uh, on your colleagues' reluctance to speak up in your defense? Well, I think you have to keep in mind that most of my, most of, of academics these days lean heavily left. The exact number, whether it's 90% or 95% and so on, is a, has been a matter of debate. Mm -hmm. But there's no question that, um, that academics tend to be very left-wing, left-leaning. The Middle East specialist in my own department, for example, uh, is a, a heavy advocate of the Palestinians uh, exclusively and uh, has no, takes no balanced view of the Middle East. She's a, absolutely an advocate. Uh, so, uh, and a number of my colleagues had signed on to uh, the boycott movement against Israel. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, they are invested in uh, this kind of left-wing uh, view. On the other hand, the, uh, this identity, this kind of very overt identity politics, oh, something was said that, that didn't make me feel wonderful, so cancel that guy. Uh, that maybe that, that is a little unprofessional for my colleagues to have signed on to. In any case, they didn't sign on to it. Okay. Uh, that, that's really all I know. Do you, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of Middle East studies, given all of the politicization, the biases that we see at campus watching all around the, the country every day, um, hiring trends, intellectual trends in the, in the fields, various fields, anthropology and others as well, Islamic studies. Um, how do you see the next 10, 20 years playing out? I think it's probably gonna be very difficult to be hired in Middle East studies uh, if you aren't of Middle East origin, I think that universities have kind of bought into the racial and identity uh, uh, commitment, J just as they, I mean, in Canada, they're hiring uh, First Nations people. Uh, 
you know, if you're an anthropologist that studies First Nations, forget it. They're not interested anymore. You've got to be one of them, one of them yourself, uh, and so on. So I think uh, I think it's going to be difficult uh, for people who aren't of Middle Eastern derivation to be hired. The other thing is, unless you take a very strong leftist view and probably pro-Palestinian view, I think you're also unlikely to get hired. Um, I've had people ask me, um, people who said they, they tended to take my view of things, uh, where they should go to graduate school and should they go into Middle East studies? And I said, I thought that uh, it would be a very hard row to hoe. Um, and I was not able to encourage them. So I, I don't think much. Look, I think academia has gone down a very dangerous and self-negating path here. Not just Middle East studies, uh, although it's an extreme case, but uh, throughout uh, the social sciences and humanities, I think, I think they've um, violated their, um, their responsibility. They've lost their intellectual integrity. And um, I I'm, I'm extremely sad to see where academia has gone. I loved being a professor. I loved anthropology. And anthropology in general has also gone down that, that path. I think it's a, it's a great loss. Yes, it is a great loss. It's, it's terrible. It's a loss of the, of the search for truth. For the record, you, you were not canceled. Um, you're still Professor Emeritus at McGill. Uh, the administration eventually came out and, and stood behind you. <clears throat> Looking ahead to the, to the future and the way the um, profession is going overall, the discipline, not just anthropology, but again, Middle East studies speaking more broadly. Yes. Um, the grad students who signed on to uh, deny you your title of Emeritus are tomorrow's professors, at least a few of them are. And uh, I have to assume, and everything that we've seen indicates that uh, their peers, both in the US and Canada, generally agree with their perspective. And um, my question is, if the, if the disciplines continue to go this way, if Islamic studies, various languages, Middle East studies broadly, continues to um, radicalize uh, and um, becomes even worse than it is now, uh, is it going to draw students? Are people going to continue to major in these various sub-disciplines, I'll call them, of Islamic studies, Middle East studies, history, and other areas in which they concentrate in the Middle East? Look, uh, being on the right side, uh, joining into an, the, an ideology that's absolutely right is very gratifying and very supportive. It's much much easier and less challenging than to make your way uh, uh, doing original work and trying to discover, discover the truth. So uh, this is the easy way. And I think, I think people will continue to do it and will continue to be um, uh, attracted to it, but for the wrong reasons. Uh, and I think there's also a movement uh, away from, uh, from the scholarly role to scholar activist role. And the idea, since you already have the answers, 
go out there and force other people to accept your answers. Sure, sure. Uh, Let me ask you another question quickly, if I can, from sure. the audience. Um, what is the actual impact of Middle East studies beyond the ivory tower, someone asks? What influence do these people have in the greater culture, society, politics? Well, I think they are very influential uh, because their, uh, their movement, uh, uh, those that take strong ideological positions are able to activate students. Those students are able to, uh, to spread the message, to have demonstrations and, and to carry that message out to the general public. And uh, uh, misrepresentations can be taken up by the general public. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that from universities, people go on to be not just professors, but they go on uh, into the media. Uh, and they go on into politics, and they go on into law. So they're in a, they have been and are in a process of transforming America and Canada uh, according to their Marxist ideology. The influence is widespread and pernicious. Uh, a final question, if we can, from the audience. Someone asks about uh, Gulf state funding. I'm going to broaden the question, ask about one country, but in general, are you seeing uh, in Canada an influx, or did you see while you were active and do you know about it now, an influx of funding from uh, the, the Gulf states into Middle East studies? Because that certainly occurred in the United States. Uh, I, I really don't know a lot about that. The, the Institute of Islamic Studies was a separate unit. Uh, and the funding part I'm not familiar with, although they did, they did get a lot of their funding from contributions in Islamic, uh, Islamic states. One final question, we have just a moment left. Um, someone asked, are there are not attempts to cancel academics supporting the rights of Palestinians more prevalent in North America than what you experienced? Let me rephrase that to say, what is the most prominent reason for the cancellation of a Middle East studies academic today that, that you know of? Well, I'm familiar with a great many cancellations. Uh, I don't know of one case of a, uh, a left-wing supporter of Palestine that has been canceled. Sure. And I don't believe, I don't believe that that happens at all. And that, that says a great deal. I think it does. Uh, Stacy. All right. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, both of you, for taking time to speak with us today. For our viewers and listeners, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.